In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day. God said, Let there be space between the waters, between the ocean, the atmosphere, and it was so. God called the space between the waters, the sky. There was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Then God said, Let the dry ground appear. Let the land produce vegetation, plants and trees, flowers of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the sky that separate the day from the night to mark the seasons, the day, and the years, and to give light on the earth. So he made the sun and the moon, the stars, and all the galaxies of the universe, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. God said, Let the waters be filled with living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth, across the sky. So God created every creature of the sea and every bird of the sky and saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the land produce living creatures of every kind, big and small, mighty and meek, wild and tame, each according to its kind. And it was so. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our own image to rule over all the earth. So God created them. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And it was so. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And on the seventh day, God rested. And there on his throne, in heaven, God looked at all that he had made and saw that it was very good. Every time that I listen and watch that, I am so glad that it can be inserted right into the mainstream of ideas. And we can then unpack that and look at the essence, the, the force of truth that we have just heard. Paul is an amazing follower of Jesus. He's a brilliant man and a writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 1, he said these words. This is starting at verse 18, and I want you to see these words. They're powerful. Romans 1.18, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people 
who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. They know the truth, but they suppress it. Verse 20, let's keep going. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God. But they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. To the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, I, I would pose this question. Paul, can we know that God exists? And he would answer, yes, you can know that God exists. Number two, he would say, you actually do know that he exists. Number three, it is possible to suppress what you know. Well, Paul, if you can know that God exists, how? He says, well, look at everything you see, and it will make clear what you can't see. It will make clear the invisible qualities, the eternal power, and the divine nature of God. Paul says you can infer by what has been created that there is a God. Just look at the heavens because they are saying it every moment of every day, seven days a week, that there is a God. It's a cosmological argument. Let me show you what that argument is. Number one, it says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Well, let me pause right there and tell you that this is where scientists align. There was a day that they didn't. About 100 years ago, Einstein had introduced the general theory of relativity, which supported the idea of a static universe, that the universe had always been and it would always be. As he continued to work his formula, it brought him to the conclusion that it looks as though there is a cause. The implication of the God factor to that conclusion made him change the formula, which later in his life, he changed it back to its original form and said by changing it was the biggest blunder of his career. So scientists align that the universe began to exist. They don't all agree how it began, but they agree that there was a beginning. Number three, the universe must have a cause. My position is Genesis chapter one, that in the beginning, God, that God is the cause. God is the creator. Now, there are those who would disagree with this and those who disagree with it uh, use a certain theory, of which I'll talk about in a moment. But let me, first of all, give you a quote from the Nobel-winning physicist. We're talking about a brilliant man who helped to show that the universe had a beginning. And I want you to hear the words that he actually said. Now, this, this guy is 
he's forgotten more than most people will ever know. The best data we have, now he's talking about the tools of science concerning the origin of the universe, are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Now, there are some scientists who do not believe this, even though you have someone like this, a world-renowned cosmologist, who's saying that there is so much proof of the existence of God when you really study the cosmos. Yet others would say, okay, the earth or the universe does have a beginning, and there is a cause, and that cause is the Big Bang Theory. Now, I googled Big Bang Theory, and this is what I found. Anyway, uh, actually, the Big Bang Theory says there was a massive explosion. And a result of the Big Bang is where all matter came from. But if that is true, that the Big Bang then came from nothing, or that, that, that's what has to be true then how does nothing explode? And these brilliant scientists, of one I just quoted, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, says you can't come to that conclusion and still be reasonable. That the conclusion you come to using even the tools of science brings you back to the first five books. I was intrigued by that because he went on to say, it's interesting, he said, the more the tools of science advance, which allows us to do even more detailed research, the more it moves us to the Genesis account of creation. He said, there is no tool of science that can exactly prove the existence of God. But he says, it's interesting that the more advanced our tools become for scientific research, they move us to God and not away from God. I find that very interesting. So, it's not that science can disprove God. It's just that their tools aren't advanced enough yet to prove exactly what we see Genesis 1 saying. These scientists that we're going to cite today have some amazing insights. Let me remind you of what Francis Collins says. He's the first to sequence the genetic structure. So we're talking about an astounding accomplishment, one of the most brilliant men on the planet today. He said, there are 15 constants in the universe, and if even one was off one part in a million, then the, the universe couldn't exist. There's no way for us to live. Life could not be sustained. Now, this guy, Francis Collins, was a devout atheist, wrote articles in, in very recognized journals, defying anyone who would embrace the Genesis 1 account of creation. Here he is, an example of someone who continues to use scientific tools, now even able to do what he has accomplished. He is now a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, because he sees that there is no way this could have happened by a series of chemical reactions. 
there must be a beginning. Therefore, there is a cause, and that cause, in his opinion, is creator God. Now, let me try and illustrate that for a moment. When I talk about those 15 constants, some say you could recite 50 of them. Let me try and make this as practical as I can. Let me put a a ruler on the screen. And let's say that this ruler was going from one side of our galaxy to the other. And we know that our galaxy is one of billions of galaxies. And our one galaxy, if you traveled at the speed of light from one side to the other, which is 186,000 miles per second, it would take 100,000 years to get from one side of our galaxy to the other. Now, within our galaxy is the constant of gravity. And just so happens, this is the way an atheist would respond to this. Just so happens, the constant of gravity fell. And let me just put a mark here. In just the right place so that the galaxy could function and life could be sustained. And there are about 15 specific constants that are exactly perfectly calibrated that if even one was off one part in a million it would be impossible so francis collins looking at at just these constants this is going from cosmology and it's moving over into physics and using the tools of physics you can see that there had to be this brilliant cause creator that it couldn't be an accident. Now, there are some scientists who say that there are many universes. And we just happen to be the universe where all of the constants are perfectly calibrated so that life could exist. So it just happened. It is an accident. Just, it just happened. But Francis Collins, who used to be in that camp, said there's no way you would want to stake your life on that idea because it's so unreasonable. He said so unreasonable, it would be like if you could go to the moon and if you were given a dart that was engineered in such a way that if you threw it at earth, it could somehow survive that journey and you had a target on earth that was so small you couldn't even see it. Like, it's like you're, you know the target's there, but you can't see it even as close as I am to this floor. But now going up to the moon, throw the dart. He said, the chances of these 15 constants being calibrated perfectly would be likened to you throwing that dart off the moon and that dart coming all the way to earth and hitting perfectly in the bullseye of the target. He said another way is if you took 20 of the greatest marksmen in the world, sharpshooters, and you put them just six feet away from a human-sized target, and you counted down, three, two, one, zero, and at zero you told them to shoot, they all shoot and they all miss. He said, there is a possibility that all 20 of the best shooters in the entire world, just six feet away from a human-sized target, there is a chance that they would all miss. But it's unlikely and unreasonable. So, yes, there is a chance that all of these constants would be so perfectly calibrated 
so that life could function, so that everything could exist in its intricate detail. But one brilliant scientist after the other is saying, it is unreasonable to bank your life on it being an accident. So the Nobel Prize winning physicist says, here's what I've concluded, that the story of creation captured in the first chapter of Genesis is how all of this happened. There had to be this brilliant planner because everything has such strategic purpose and it is so perfectly aligned and calibrated that there's no other way. It would be like all of these dials that are perfect. There's, there's a chemist that attends our 9 o'clock service and he gave me a way to present this. He said, imagine taking the, this one part in a million. He said, he said, and this is what a chemist does. This intrigues me. He said, I took a dollar bill and I measured the width of a dollar. Like, I don't even think of doing that. So, that's why I'm not a chemist. And he said, if you stacked one million one dollar bills by using the width of a dollar he said do you know how high it would be I said well everybody knows how high that would be <laughs> I said I have no idea he said be 30 feet so 30 feet one dollar bills up to one million and if you moved one dollar just one part in a million from this constant, none of this works. There are upwards of 50 of these, nuclear fusion, gravity, energy in space, so that if, if our distance from the sun changes one part in a like a million billion 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 game over just one part in a million and none of this works and there are like 50 of these that are perfectly calibrated and just happen and sometimes we we will say things like you know I wish I could see some miracles you're sitting by a miracle when you walk outside, you're looking at a miracle. If you are a believer, I would say to you, this is a great message to so galvanize your faith to pray big and believe big because you have an amazing God who is eternal in power, who is divine in nature, and his invisible quality is seen by what he has made plain. He's an amazing God. So these are some of the, the responses. Let me quote the professor of physics, MIT, who's now Professor Emeritus. Now, we're talking about a brilliant lady here. She says, the, the exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. So, Paul, can we know that God exists? He says, yes, because God has made it plain by what you see in creation. You can infer by creation that there is 
a God. Paul, is that all you have? He would say, no, but at least that. And it's amazing. So deductively, intuitively, he's saying deductively, just look at the cosmos. Deductively, venture into the laws of physics. But he says there's something more and there's something stronger. He says, yes, you can know that there is a God. Number two, you actually do know there is a God. He's written it on your heart. Now this became one of the most energizing phases of this study for me and getting ready for these messages because I thought, well, how would you go about communicating a point that you know intuitively? And there are many ways, but one way is I Googled smart atheists who have turned Christian. And I now have a file, and I'm collecting these stories of these brilliant people who were once atheists who are now followers of Jesus. And I want to quote some of them. You've heard of T.S. Eliot. You have heard of C.S. Lewis. One that is not as familiar is A.N. Wilson, who has written tons of books tearing down Christianity. And anyone who would embrace the Genesis 1 account of Christianity or of creation and embrace Christianity. And on Easter of 2009, he used his own money to take out front page space in all British newspapers to tell his story of going from atheist to follower of Jesus. He said he had a Damascus Road experience when he was a young adult, but it was a Damascus Road conversion to atheism. He said it was dramatic, it was strong, and, and he, he felt so, so fortified in his position of atheism. And he says, now that I'm taking out space in a newspaper that's going to be read by tens of thousands of people to tell my story of becoming a Christ follower, to tell you now I am saying I was wrong and I have arrived to it deductively, but really, here's what he says, it's not my tools of science that have led me to this conclusion. It's what I knew all the time. I just suppressed it. C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and he writes that he was not an atheist because he couldn't figure it out scientifically. He said, I was an atheist because as a little boy, my mom died, and I couldn't reconcile a God who would allow something like that. He said, but my entire life, he said, I'd wake up. Now, now follow me here. He said, I'd wake up in the early morning hours saying, what is it in me that makes me feel that what has happened to my mom is inequitable? If this is unfair, where am I getting a concept of what is fair? If this doesn't seem right, then where am I getting an idea that there, should, there is a standard? And he said, I realized the argument that I was using to not believe 
required that I believe. In other words, God had put in my heart that pain like this isn't normal and it isn't right. And there are no answers. But that's on this side of eternity. There will be a time where questions will be answered and we will know as we are known and all things will be put right. And he said, but what was interesting is that I arrived at the place where I had to ask the question, how did I sense that? Here's what A.N. Wilson says. When he was an atheist, all of his atheist friends, they would have lunch together, and they were all very passionate about the injustice in the world. He said everything from people groups that didn't have clean drinking water to genocide that was going on in certain countries, he said it infuriated us. And he said, I would look in the mirror and be posed with this thought. Where is that idea coming from that injustice is truly that? He goes on to say even now that what you're watching ISIS do to innocent people, the beheading of people, he said, if an atheist is indignant toward ISIS beheading innocent people, they need to confront where does that position that what ISIS is doing is wrong, where does that come from? Because he has, he, God, has written on our hearts that he exists. He's put eternity in your heart. He, he's put a moral compass in your heart. It doesn't mean you live by it. It just means you intuitively know. And he says, when you watch all of these scientists work so hard to come up with things like this whole galaxy and universe is an accident and they go into minute detail trying to prove it. He said, why do they work so hard? Because something is written on their heart telling them what truth really is and their effort is not to discover truth. Their effort is to suppress what they already know. The Hebrew word for God, Yahweh, when you really get into the, the detail of the Hebrew pronunciation, it, it's like a sound of inhaling and exhaling. And A.N. Wilson said, I realize that with the breath I would take in and form words to say there is no God, before I could form those words, I had already enunciated God. It's in creation. Deductively, you can bring it down through cosmology, through physics, not to mention DNA. And you know it intuitively. These scientists say if you went to the beach and water was coming in and you saw different shapes in the sand, you would see patterns. And you say water can do that. But if suddenly you saw words written that was information, you go, how did that happen? Water can't, 
can't provide information. Water can create patterns, but not words. If you take one cell in your body, it would take years to read. Read the information that is in just one cell. Not a pattern, but a code. A blueprint of you that in that one cell had the ability to inform so that your body could be built, your mind. You're fearfully and wonderfully made and the cause is not an explosion that would have had to come from nothing. The cause is in the beginning. God. God. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Intuitively, you know it. And let me move to a conclusion. My heart is so full. There's not only the evidence when you look up and you see the sky. Do that tonight. Just Take a look at an Oklahoma sky on a clear night. Consider the people you see. Consider these constants of the universe. But there's the evidence of history. Because when you look at creation, you can know there's a God of power. But it's not until you look at the cross that you are overwhelmed by a God of love. And when I mention the cross, I'm moving into what some of these scientists who are now believers so espouse. They say, what's amazing to me is that the creator did not stop at creation. They're saying we're not deists. A lot of scientists who believe that the the universe had a beginning, but they don't embrace Genesis 1. They are deists, which means they believe God created the universe, but then he walked away. That he he created it and wound it up like a clock, and it's just going to wind down and come to nothing. That he is impersonal, distant, certainly unspeaking. That you can't relate to him, you certainly can't know him. But these scientists that I'm referring to, some of the most brilliant in the world, are saying, Creator God didn't lead them to being deists because they saw the Creator act in such a way to become the Redeemer because they moved from the evidence of creation to the evidence of history where a man named Jesus was placed on a cross, nailed to that cross, And upon him was transferred all of our sins. And when you see him on that cross, you're seeing your substitute. Our substitute. The one who was perfect became sin because you and I couldn't satisfy the justice and the holiness of God. Sinners we are. Shaped and conceived in sin. So all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament, as meticulously as they were prepared, yet only covered sin for a season. But they were pointing to an ultimate sacrifice 
So that when you see Jesus on the cross, you're seeing the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Upon him was placed all of our sin. He died in such perfection that it satisfied the holiness of God and it turned loose the love of God so that whosoever will may call on the name of the Lord and they will be saved. And he's the only name given according to Dr. Luke. He is the only name we have whereby we can be saved. And Peter came along who also was a follower of Jesus and said when they put all of the sin upon him, In that transaction, we are able to say, by his stripes, we are healed. By his brokenness, we are made whole. By his death, we are made alive. This is the evidence of history that goes beyond a God of power to a God who loved you so much, who paid a price that you and I could not pay, who died a death that we could not qualify to die, who rose again by the Spirit of God and has satisfied the justice of God. The psalmist says, mercy and justice, they have met. It's like mercy was locked up in the Old Testament. And you would hear someone saying, mercy, God have mercy. But mercy was like in a prison. But when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, mercy broke out of the prison and ran all the way to the cross and mercy and justice met. Now, you and I, all we have to do is say, I confess with my mouth, I believe in my heart that you are the Son of God, risen from the dead. Forgive me of my sins. And at that moment, You become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the old passes away. Everything becomes new. And you receive purpose because this brilliant planner who knew about your birth before your mom and dad ever met had ordained a plan for you. It's called God's will for your life, in which is the most fulfillment, not void of pain, not void of limitation, but filled with the presence and the power of God to sustain you, help you, where you can say, I know that when we get to heaven, everything will be put right. All questions will be answered, and I won't even be asking them. Because it'll be perfect. But until then, I have a God who has never made a mistake, who has never failed, who is not limited by my limitations, who is this sovereign God who's written providence over all of our lives. And he is so majestic and amazing 
that his glory is higher than the heavens, and yet he chooses to do the day with you. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He watches over you with singing. He, he, he has done everything to come so that he would not be alongside of you. He would literally indwell you. He lives within you. He has taken up residence in you so that when you pray in the name of Jesus, you're not praying to just some trite God out there who's distant and unable and unspeaking. You're talking to the one who just ushers the stars out and calls them by name, who said, let there be light. And light took off at 186,000 miles per second. We have an awesome God, a mighty God of divine nature, and nothing, absolutely nothing, is too difficult for him. There's no sin he can't forgive. There's no addiction he cannot break. There is no sickness he cannot heal. There is no relationship that he cannot reconcile. If he could create the heaven and earth, he can meet your needs simultaneously and not be void of any power once he has done it. If your faith is in God, it is so well placed. And one day, and the newspaper and all news resources tell you the day is coming soon that Jesus Christ is going to return. And we're going to be taken to this place. In Genesis 1, it was a garden. In Revelation, it's going to become a city because a garden is not large enough to hold all the people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, who by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony overcome in this world and will stand before the throne to declare forever and ever that He and He alone is worthy to receive power and glory and honor and might and dominion forever and ever and ever. For his name is above every name. There is no other name. Can you give him praise today? Come on, let's give him praise today. Let's give our creator God praise. He is worthy of praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah.